Our first reading tonight's from Psalm 16. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. I keep the Lord in my mind always. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. The uh, next reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 47. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Messiah. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptised, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favour with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, thank you that you know us, you care for us. Uh, thank you we, that we sit here in this building, uh, a shelter. Thank you for the people around us. Thank you for the Bible in our hands. Thank you, Father, for the way that you continue to speak to us, for the way that your spirit transforms us. Thank you, Father, for the way that you change our wrong understanding. Thank you for the comfort that you bring us. Uh, thank you, Father, for the hope that you bring us. Father, we do pray that as I, I speak tonight that you would uh, remove any words that are untrue or unhelpful, uh, that I might speak uh, wonderful truths from the Scriptures, and that you would do a mighty work in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Does I love church. I love church. It's actually my sixth gathering this weekend. I love it. What better than meeting with God's people? All, all over the world tonight, today, there are millions of Christians who just gather, just meet. Uh, some meet in open fields, some meet in mud huts, some meet in schools, some meet in office blocks, some meet in multi-million dollar purpose-built complexes, some meet in old buildings like this one. But something special when God's people gather together. When we meet together to, to sing God's praises, to hear his word, to lift our petitions and our requests and our thanksgiving to him, it is so good to, to meet together as God's people, to church. And the world sees that as normal, don't they? If you tell your friends you're a Christian, they expect you to go to church. They expect you to gather. Nothing unusual about that, is there? Except I keep meeting Christians who, who love Jesus, but they don't like church. They love Jesus, but they can't stand God's people, God's church. Uh, sometimes the institution is, is at fault, you know. We stuff up, we mess up, we hurt people, we wound people. But sometimes people just 
They kind of want Jesus, but they don't want the body. They want the head without the body. They want all the benefits without any responsibility. I keep meeting people who say, oh, I do church at home. I, I sit in my, in my room and on, on a Sunday or a Saturday, I've got my Bible and I've got, a, I've got a podcast, I've got a worship CD. I just do church. It's just me and God. No responsibility, no structures. And I want to say, you know, you're missing out. No relationships. No serving. No people just to encourage you and to spur you on. I know a group of people who left this church and they now meet in their home. There's just four or five of them up on the northern beaches. And that's their church, except that those four or five are identical to each other. You know, they think the same, they act the same, they dress the same. They don't let anybody into that church unless they are exactly like them. And I want to say, you know, they're actually missing out. They're missing out on what I call the, the messiness of church. You know that, where... There are people who sit next to you, you've got absolutely nothing in common with them. They are so unlike you. <laughs> Except you've got Jesus in common. It makes church so beautiful, isn't it? That we're just so unlike each other. There's a whole generation in the US that have called themselves the, the done with church generation. <laughs> you can go onto their blog, they're done with church. You know, they, they, they're, they're often in their 50s or 60s. They're, They're just done with church. They've been at church for 30 years, 40 years, every Sunday. Same message, same place, same songs, same people. They're just bored. They're done with church. Something's wrong there, isn't it? Or or the de-church, and people have been hurt and wounded by church, and they just can't gather anymore. God tells us there's something beautiful about when we gather. It's what Christians do, isn't it? We gather to, to worship God and to encourage each other and to spur each other on. Church should be a beautiful place. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon that imperfect as it is, church is the dearest place on earth when God's people gather together. We're in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and you know, the Spirit of God has just come on God's people and people have, have been saved. People believe in Jesus. What's the first thing they do when they come to faith in Christ? Tyson just read it from Acts chapter 2. They, they, they gather together, 3,000 people, and they're devoted to gathering together in the temple complexes, in the public gatherings, and in private from house to house. It's, it's the mark that you really have been gripped by the gospel, the mark that you really have been filled with the Spirit, is that you just want to meet with God's people. You want to do church. I want to give you three marks of a spirit-filled church. The first one is this. Uh, the Jesus that we proclaim. The spirit-filled church must, must, must keep preaching Jesus. This sermon that we're looking at tonight in Acts chapter 2, the first sermon preached after Pentecost, the first sermon preached in a sort of New Testament church, What's, gonna, what's Peter going to preach about? He doesn't preach self-help sermons. He doesn't just entertain them. He doesn't preach on the Holy Spirit. You think he might preach on the Holy Spirit because he's just experienced the Holy Spirit. You know, who is the Spirit and how he came and what to expect? What is the subject of this very first sermon to the New Testament church? 
is the person of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It's, it's such a simple point, it's such a basic point, but it's so important that the, the, the cornerstone of every church is the Lord Jesus Christ. The head of every church is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we gather together, who do we want to hear about? Jesus. We must keep preaching Jesus. We left last week in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we want to hear. We want to see people turning to Jesus and being saved, being saved from their sins, being forgiven, having a right relationship with God. So what do we preach? We preach Jesus. Verse 22, we preach the life of Jesus, Jesus the man, Jesus the Nazarene, the man who did the miracles and the wonders and the sign. We, we preach about how Jesus demonstrated God's power through his life, how Jesus revealed God's truth through his words. We've got to preach the, the man Jesus Christ. We've got to preach the death of Jesus. I love this beautiful balance in verse 23 between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. You see that in verse 23? That, that Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan, God's foreknowledge. God knew all about the cross. It wasn't an accident. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and you killed him. He says, the blood's on your hand. You are responsible for the death of Jesus. But that was God's plan because the cross is at the center of God's plan for salvation. The cross was God's way to save sinners. The cross was God's way that he would pour out forgiveness on his people. The cross was God's way that he would turn away his wrath. Every church needs to keep preaching the cross. Christ crucified. Every church keeps preaching the resurrected Jesus. Verse 24, God raised Jesus up, ending the pains of death, because it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. He defeated death. He destroyed death. He couldn't hold him down. He's risen. And David predicted that in Psalm 16, verse 25. We had Psalm 16 read. It's quoted here in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 onwards. But look at verse 27. Uh, You will not leave me in Hades, and you won't allow your Holy One to see decay. Who is David talking about there? He's not talking about himself. Because Peter says in verse 29, Brothers, David is dead. David is buried. And David's tomb is with us to this day. He's saying David is not the Messiah. That's his tomb over there. You know, you can go and see David's tomb in Jerusalem. You could book yourself into one of the most expensive hotels in Jerusalem. It's called the King David Hotel. And it overlooks the graveyard where David's tomb is. It's there. His bones are there. He's dead. But, verse, 20, um, but verse, verse 30, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades. His flesh did not experience decay because God has resurrected this Jesus. We've got to preach that death did not hold him down because he is risen. And the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that death is not the end. The the resurrection of Jesus gives us the hope that our bodies will be raised and we have new bodies. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hope and the assurance of eternal life. 
Every church keeps preaching the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. You see that in verse 33? Since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, that's where he is seated. Reigning, ruling as head of this church. Or verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know with certainty, be confident of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. A spirit-filled church will keep on banging on about Jesus. Remember last week we celebrated our 10th anniversary. The number of people who stood here and said, the thing I love about this church is we keep talking about Jesus. May that never change. The proper Christian preaching is always has Jesus at the center. The subject is Jesus. A guy in London, he said, the problem with most churches around him is that the, the vicars, that's the English word for me, the vicars feel like it's their job every Sunday to entertain the people. He said, to be honest, I get more entertainment by staying at home and watching TV. I don't go to church to be entertained. I go to church to hear about Jesus. I go to church to, to, to be reminded who Jesus is and where my hope is and where my salvation is. Peter's not into entertaining people. We're not into entertaining you. We're here to tell you about Jesus. Because he, verse 36, is both Lord and Messiah. He's the King. He's the Christ. He's the one our hope is found in. So the, so the Jesus we proclaim, the response we expect. I hope when you come to church every single week, you expect to leave church a changed person. Don't you want that? You don't want to come and leave as the same person. You want God to have done some work in you. Whenever God's word is preached in the power of the Spirit, you expect some response. When Jesus explained, we expect a response. But when this first sermon was preached, they got a response, a, a, a wonderful response. 3,000 people were converted. You see that in verse 37? When they heard this sermon about Jesus, they came under deep conviction. Uh, the word there for deep conviction is they were, they were cut to the heart. Their, their consciences was laid bare. They felt like somebody was preaching directly to them. I've had that experience where you're sitting in church and, and you feel like the, the preacher is eyeballing you and thinking, he's talking directly to me. That's what God's Spirit does, doesn't he? He, he kind of rips you open and says... That's got to change, and that's got to change. And he exposes the sin in your life and says, look to Jesus, repent, believe. And I love the fact in verse 37, when, when Jesus is preached, it's not the preacher trying to tell the people what to do. It's the people themselves that said, we've got to do something. We can't just leave here and do nothing. They say, verse 37, what must we do? Tell us. If this is true, if Jesus is king, if he's Lord, he's Messiah, it matters. We've got to do something. And Peter says in verse 38, repent. Turn around and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That, that's the right response to the gospel, isn't it? Verse 38, repent. Uh, that word just means 
Admit that you were wrong. Admit that you spent your whole life with a wrong attitude towards Jesus. Admit that you've lived your whole life thinking that Jesus is just a man or he's just a prophet or just a teacher and admit that he is God, he is King, he is Lord, he is Messiah. Acknowledge that you've got it wrong all your life. It's pretty hard to acknowledge you're wrong, isn't it? On long service leave last year, Rachel and I landed in the, the south of Spain in a place called Malaga. It was 9 o'clock at night, three young kids in the back of the car, rental car in Spain, driving on the wrong side of the road for the first time. And we were driving to a place called Nurka. And I, in my arrogance, I, I'm often like this behind the wheel of a car, oh, I know where I'm going. And so we set out for Nurka. And Rachel kept on saying, are you sure we're going the right way? Oh, yeah, 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 right. It's good. But Nurka's on the coast, and this is the mountains. Oh, no, we're fine. I know where I'm going. How about we stop and get the GPS out of the boot? No, no, we're fine. I know where I'm going. We drove for over half an hour. And they said, I think we're going the wrong way. And you know, my arrogance, I, I was tempted to say, oh, I know, darling. I'm just taking the scenic route. It's okay. I know where we're going. There's something pretty humbling to say, I'm wrong. We're going completely the wrong way. So what do you do? You turn the car around. You drive back the right way. That's what repentance is. Having the humility to say, look, I was wrong. <laughs> God was right. I was wrong about Jesus. He is king. He is Messiah. He did live. He did die. He did rise. He is ascended. He is coming again. I've been wrong all my life. I've been living life with me as king. It's time to stop living for that. And when you've been cut to the core, you know, that word repentance is a beautiful word. It's a beautiful word because you just turn back to God and he just welcomes you. Uh, Peter says, repent, verse 38, and be baptized. Because if repentance is that internal change, that mindset change, that reorientation. Baptism is the open, public declaration that you've decided to follow Jesus. There's something beautiful about you know, that, that baptism where the person goes under the water. I've died with Christ and they come up out of the water. I've been raised with Jesus. They do it publicly. They're proclaiming to the whole world, I was wrong, but now I'm right. I believe in Jesus. I've, I've decided to follow Jesus. Let me be clear here. I, I'm not saying that unless you've been baptized with water, you're not saved. That's ridiculous. The moment you believed in Jesus, you are saved. And I'm not saying that something special happens with the water where grace is just sort of poured on you. But as I read the New Testament, it seems to me that, that water baptism is assumed. That it's assumed if you believe, if you turn to Jesus, then of course you'll be baptized. You publicly want to declare that you now belong to Jesus. And when you do that, when you repent, verse 38, you've got that assurance that your sins are forgiven because of Jesus, that assurance that you're not guilty anymore, that assurance that you, you can't earn your forgiveness because it's, your sins are forgiven. The assurance, verse 38, that you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God lives in you, you're a different person, you're empowered, you're ready to live for God. As Jesus is preached, as people are convicted, 
we should expect repentance. People being saved. So let me ask you, have you done that? In a crowd this side, there were people here tonight who have never done that. You've never actually said, you know, I was wrong about Jesus. He is God. He is King. He is the Messiah. Tonight's a great night to do that. I'm not suggesting we all take you all down to the water and dunk you in the water. All I'm saying is, in your seat right here, right now, you can say, God, I was wrong. You were right. I want to live for Jesus. But you know, repentance is not just what you do when you're converted. Repentance is, is that daily thing. I'm hoping you're sitting here tonight going, if Jesus is king, there's part of my life where I'm not living with him as my king. I've got to stop it and repent and turn back to God. See, the Jesus we proclaim, the response we expect, and then the, the church that we become, because God loves the church. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And what did these 3,000 people do? What what did the new believers do? They, They gathered. They churched, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That word devoted in verse 42 means literally they were addicted to. They couldn't stop doing it. They, They desired to do it. They wanted to do it. Uh, for them, church wasn't an institution. Church wasn't an event they had to go to. Church was something they just wanted to do. They're devoted to learning, verse 42. To the apostles' teaching. They wanted to feed their mind with the truth about Jesus. They wanted to understand exactly who Jesus was and how he did fulfill the scriptures. They wanted to understand with their mind what it meant for him to be king of their lives. And you've got to remember that these 3,000 people had never been to Sunday school. It's almost like you've got 3,000 people in kindergarten just lapping it up. Teach me more about Jesus. Can you imagine? So the the crowds are there and the, the apostles are there and they're saying, tell us more. Tell us again how Jesus healed that paralytic. Tell us again about when Jesus calmed that storm. Tell us. We want to learn. That's the mark of the church, isn't it? that we never stop learning. I remember becoming a Christian in 1990. Uh, three months after I became a Christian, I signed up to do this course that we just advertised tonight. I was living in England, doing an Australian correspondence course called Intro to the Bible. I had not a clue what I was signing up for. I just knew I needed to, to know more about God and more about the Bible. I remember as a new Christian, now, every time somebody recommended a book to me, I'd buy it and I'd read it. I remember as a new Christian longing to read the scriptures, to read the Bible and get my every day with Jesus and have my journals. And you know, that, that, that moment in your Christian life where you just want to feed your mind and learn and learn and learn and learn. Do you remember those days? Why does that stop? Why does that stop? Shouldn't we want to just keep on feeding our mind with wonderful truths about God until we meet him face to face? This church is devoted to learning. But it's not just a a Bible teaching church, it's a Bible living church. Because they devote themselves to loving one another. See that in verse 42? They devote themselves to the fellowship. Uh, That word fellowship is a word koinonia. It means a togetherness, a family. 
You know when we say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Spirit comes, we are together. We're family. The, word is, the root word is common, actually. And what it's saying is that you gather with people that you have absolutely nothing in common with. Except you do, because you've got Jesus. He's your common thing. And this church loved each other well, didn't they? Extravagant love. Sacrificial love. Verses 44 and 45 are pretty convicting, aren't they? The depth of these relationships, they shared everything. Now all the believers were together and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Now I don't think these verses are a mandate for every Christian to sell everything and set up a Christian commune. That's not happened in the early church. You know, people like Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila and Gaius, they all had big houses. They were houses to meet in. They didn't sell all their properties. But what they're saying is that, is that their stuff didn't really belong to them. It, it changed their attitude to all their stuff that they have. You know, when you realize that you belong to Jesus and you realize it's not really your stuff at all, it's God's stuff. And if somebody in God's family needs that stuff, then you share your stuff with them. So it's common stuff. That's what happened here. Somebody in church needed a car. Well, we've got a hundred cars here tonight, so who's going to lend it tonight? Oh, you need it for three months? That's okay. Take it for three months and I'll use public transport. Oh, you've lost your job. Are you making ends meet? How can we help you? Can we provide groceries for you until you find a new job? You can't pay your rent. Let's as a church, let's pay your rent for a few months because no, we can do that because we're caring for each other. Oh, you're having a baby. Let, let, me, let me pass on my maternity clothes or these baby clothes or these baby toys. Let's share our stuff. You need someone to stay. Oh, I've got a spare room. Stay as long as you want. That's what the church is supposed to be like, isn't it? Where we know each other's needs. Now, if we don't know your needs, we can't help you. But when we do know our needs, we should be known for the way that we love each other. I love this phrase, the renunciation of possessiveness. Our possessions are not ours. They belong to God and they're to be used to be shared. There should be no needy person here because the Holy Spirit has created this kind, caring community. That's church. They're a learning church. They're a loving church. They're a worshipping church. See that in verse 42, they devote themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. When they gathered together, either in the temple complex, verse 46, or in homes, verse 46, they broke bread. They stopped and they said, we're only together because of Jesus, because of his body broken, his blood shed. We're united in Christ. And they prayed the prayers, verse 42, the set prayers, the liturgy, as well as your spontaneous prayers. But when they, they met together, they worshipped Jesus. They encouraged each other towards love and good deeds, in public and in private. I love verse 46 as well. They ate their food with joyful and humble attitude, praising God. You get this idea that when God's people gathered, it, 
It wasn't boring. It wasn't miserable. (laughs) These people were filled with joy and humility. These people, when they gathered and they sung about Jesus and they prayed to Jesus, there's a joy amongst them that's infectious. And when that happens, verse 47, they found favor with all the people. All the watching world saw them. And I'm sure they didn't like the message they preached, but they could find no fault with the people. The way they loved, the way they worshipped. Something very attractive about that, isn't it? And see how our passage ends in verse 47. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Every day new people came to Christ. Every day people were being saved. You can imagine every day, like, someone comes, I, I believe, I believe. They took them down to the river, they, they dunked them, they baptized them. The next day more people were being baptized. And the church keeps on exploding. Now, how does that happen? It happens because the church is functioning as church. When people see us as church, they say, they're different. They love Jesus. Jesus is their king. They're living for Jesus. Their life matches up. They talk about Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. They're prayerful and they're loving. Have you seen the way that those Christians love each other? There must be something in that. And please don't sit here and tell me that, well, that was then, this is now, and the Lord couldn't possibly add to our numbers every day. Why not? Why couldn't he? If we were really living for him and loving like him. Isn't this a church that you long to be? A church, when we gather, we're actually so focused on Jesus and our Lord and our Messiah. All of us are repenting, either for the first time or that daily repentance. We're learning and we're loving and we're worshipping and we're witnessing. There's something very attractive about that, isn't there? Now, I know we don't do it perfectly. I fail you. You fail each other. We're not the perfect church at all. There are people here who have been deeply hurt and deeply wounded. Really sorry about that. We need to change, don't we? We need to change to be the people who actually really do love and care genuinely, not not superficially. But when we gather, what a privilege, eh? There's nowhere I'd rather be on a Sunday than gathering with God's people. Hearing his words, singing his praises, doing life. Caring, loving, sharing. Why don't we pray now that we be that covered church, shall we? Father God, what a joy to meet. What a joy to sit with people who we have so little in common with. What a joy to think that we would never naturally spend time with each other and yet we have the privilege of gathering regularly and singing and praying and learning and loving what a joy father to to gather tonight what a joy to meet with new people who are with us for the first time tonight what a joy to have the the privilege of sharing our possessions with each other for helping those who really are in need And we do ask, Lord, that we would strive to be more and more this type of church. Forgive us our failings. Show us where we need to change. 
And would you be kind enough, please, to add to our number daily? In Jesus' name.